Welcome Dendrophiles. My name is Tonya Clark from Birmingham Tree People and today I'm talking to Professor Rob McKenzie from Birmingham University. Professor McKenzie runs an experiment called BIFOR which looks at the impact of climate and environmental change on woodlands. BIFOR is, is an institute of the University of Birmingham so it, it actually uh, covers uh, all kinds of science uh, social science and even um, cultural research into how we can use forests to live sustainably on the one planet that we have available to us. The most significant experimental facility that we have institute is a thing called Bi4 Phase, where the phase stands for free air carbon enrichment. And that outdoor experimental facility um, on the Staffordshire Shropshire border, where we increase the amount of carbon dioxide in the air in a real live forest, in a big mature oak forest. So what it looks like a whole pile of plumbing very neatly and carefully snuck into a snuck into an old English woodland. You've got some amazing videos and photos on your website. It's a very photogenic experiment because we're having to put a lot of metal work very carefully as I say into the into the forest. So there's a lot of high tech equipment and engineering right up close to the iconic English oak tree. So you're pumping in all this extra CO2. What effect is it having? Well, CO2, uh, plants love CO2. That's the substrate they, they make sugar from in photosynthesis. So in principle, it should, but the story becomes much more complicated when you move from thinking about an individual leaf um, or even an individual plant to thinking about how a whole forest responds. So for a mature forest, uh, like the one that we're working in, so, uh, uh, the oak trees in our forest are 160 years old and the, uh, and the forest soil is, is much older than that. The trees do take up more carbon dioxide and then they allocate it throughout the forest. Some, some of it will go into putting more wood uh, into the trees, so that they're growing in that thing. But a lot of the carbon is used for other things. Oh, like what other things? Like not just growing above ground, but growing below ground. We think below ground is one of the most important places that these plants in that setting will look to uh, put the extra resource that we've given them. So by by putting they can put carbon below ground by by building new roots uh, and going out and exploring the space uh, all around them, and they can also actually exude carbon in the form of sugars and other uh, organic compounds directly from, from the roots and use them as a kind of in a kind of bartering system where they provide these compounds as food or other organisms especially symbiotic fungi that live in the soil and then the fungi deliver back to the plant nitrogen and phosphorus particularly they need to get a balanced diet so have you found any limiting factors yet we haven't found a limiting factor as yet we have some reasons to believe that nitrogen may be uh, limiting to a certain extent in the, in the forest, but it's uh, not possible for us uh, to tell that yet. And one of the reasons it's not possible to be sure is that what we do see is quite, far, quite large variations uh, from year to year. So we've been running, this is now our fourth growing season, but over the previous three growing seasons where we offered the trees this extra carbon dioxide, they were all quite different. So if you remember last summer, it uh, was, was warm and dry. The summer before that, it's, it's 
early part of the growing season, we had the beast from the east, so it was very cold, very late, and then it was very warm. And the summer before that was a bit more like a routine English summer, so a bit warm, a bit warm and a bit wet. And those environmental factors make a big difference to how productive the forest is year on year. And so we, we need to run the experiment over many years in order, in order to, uh, to really see the story playing out. Have you seen an impact on wildlife other than the fungi that you've talked about? We've seen the first indications of something coming through the food web in the insect community. And we've got some brilliant entomologists working with us in the forest. And they've been looking particularly at the little larvae that feed inside the leaves. And there's just a hint that there was a difference in the amount of feeding that they do inside the leaves when the leaf has been exposed to this increased amount of carbon dioxide. So the amount of carbon dioxide that we're adding in, sorry, just to, to explain this, we're adding 40% on top of what we have now. And that takes us to an atmosphere that we'll all be breathing by about 2050. That seems like a, a lot of extra carbon dioxide. Yeah, carbon dioxide is increasing incredibly quickly, even in spite of Kyoto and Paris and Katowice and all the rest of our best efforts. Would a different species of tree absorb more CO2, for example, if you had evergreens? We do think that there will be species differences. We've got a few holly in the, in the forest. The forest has been planted with oaks 150 years ago, so it's sort of even age forest with respect to the oaks. It's had quite a lot of other things come in underneath it. There's a lot of hazel, there's a lot of sycamore, hawthorns and hollies and things like that. So we do have some, some different trees that we can look at to see whether they're responding differently. What are the interim results of the experiment so far? What we're finding is that they are responding really quickly to the additional carbon dioxide that's been uh, offered to them. And that suggests that there's plenty of adaptability in these older uh, plants and in the community around the older plants to deal with these changes. What we're not sure on yet is whether in adapting, the plants make themselves and the plant community, the forest community, makes itself uh, more resilient. So it's, it's a bit like um, getting extra food and so making yourself a bit stronger. It's one line of argument. But the other line of argument is that the food that they're getting is sugar. And just like ourselves, you unbalance your diet so that you're getting much more sugar than you are, uh, protein and the other things that you need to live. Then you're, you're, you're not going to be quite as resilient as you would be otherwise. So we're, not still, we're still not entirely sure which way uh, the forest is being tilted by the push that we're giving it experimentally, but of course we all as a society are giving all the forests in the, in the world. You're talking about all around the world. The implications of climate change are global, aren't they? I suppose it's important just to, to give people a, a sense that this is a really globally significant scientific experiment. So this is one of the three biggest climate change experiments in the world. The other two one, one looks like ours, but it's in a, in a eucalyptus forest outside Sydney. And the other one uses kind of really fancy Dan open-topped greenhouse construction in a kind of bogland in Minnesota. So these are really, these are really big facilities. So we have many, many scientists collaborating with us because uh, there are so many dimensions to the problem once you start thinking about not just an individual plant or an individual but really how all the organisms work collaboratively inside a, and competitively inside a forest. 
Thank you so much for speaking to me today, Rob. That was really interesting. It's fantastic to have a globally significant research project happening in this country. If you'd like to find out more about the BIFOR project, have a look on the Birmingham Institute of Forest Research website. The page is very comprehensive with photos, videos and more information about the research. The tree I'm in love with today is the horse chestnut, Aeschylus hippocastanum. Those beautiful pyramids of flowers smothering the trees in April and May, followed by the glossy, marbled, chocolate-coloured conkers in the autumn. We think of horse chestnuts as native, but they were introduced into the UK in the 1660s from the Balkan area. That's why you'll find them in streets and parks, but not in woodland. Horse chestnuts are part of the Hippocastaneaceae family, which contains 25 species of horse chestnut and buckeye. The trees are large, up to 35 metres tall, and they grow rapidly, living for about 250 years. This rapid growth means that their limbs can shatter and their timber isn't that useful. It was used to make artificial limbs, as it's light and easily shaped. The wood has an even grain and can take a high polish, and so sometimes it's used in cabinet making. The shape of most trees is pyramidal, with graceful branches curving down and then up at the ends. At the end of each twig, and in opposite pairs along it, are sticky, reddy brown buds which swell in spring. The resin on the buds liquefies and the bud scales open and drop off revealing several nascent leaves and a flower bud. Each leaf is made up of up to seven stalkless leaflets arranged like fingers. They are broad at one end and taper into towards where they join the leaf stalk. The whole leaf can be up to 45 centimetres wide. The flower stalk or thurs is made up of flowers on the stalk which come off the main stalk they are usually white with pink markings to attract bees. They are full of nectar too. Only a couple of the flowers will go on to produce conkers. Each conker is covered in a spiny green fleshy shell, which is an ovary, which means that the conker is in fact a seed. Conkers have several uses, from the children's game in which the conker is pierced through and threaded with string, then knocked against another one until it gets smashed off its string, or, when pounded with water, the conkers release the chemical isculin, which is a saponin. That is, it produces a soap foam in water. You can wash your hands with it. Isculin causes gastric problems in humans, but cattle, deer and sheep do eat conkers. John Evelyn, in his book Silver, in 1676, encouraged the planting of horse chestnuts and said they were so named because the conkers were fed to horses to cure a respiratory disorder called broken wind, which, to be honest, I thought was something else entirely. In 1945, Edward Stepp wrote that horses won't touch horse chestnuts and the name was probably given to differentiate the tree from the sweet chestnut. Aesculus, in Latin, actually means oak. So why is it called a horse chestnut? I think it's probably because when the leaves drop off the branch, they leave a scar with seven marks around the edge, which looks like the nails in a horseshoe. There is much to enjoy about the horse chestnut, but they won't be with us forever. They are prone to three pests, 
two of which are having a deleterious effect on them. Horse chestnut leaf blotch is a fungus which causes brown patches with yellow outlines on the leaves. It's been around for a long time and doesn't really harm the tree. The horse chestnut leaf miner, on the other hand, was first seen in this country in 2002. The miner is the larval stage of a moth and it tunnels through the leaves making them go brown. The whole tree can turn brown. This impacts on the tree's ability to photosynthesise and, if it happens every year, it will reduce its vigour. Another recent introduction is bleeding canker, which is caused by a bacteria. It produces lesions on the trunks and branches which ooze a dark fluid. This can kill affected trees. Hopefully we'll be able to enjoy these trees for at least another 300 years in our parks, even if we lose them from our streets.